This is the GodSaidSo.com podcast with Eric Craig. To contact GodSaidSo.com with any questions, comments, or to request free Bible study material, please call 1-844-77-BIBLE or email contact at GodSaidSo.com. For free Bible study resources, please visit www.GodSaidSo.com. When Jesus gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 and 20, and Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, he outlined four steps to accomplish the work of making disciples for him. The first step is go. The second step is preach. The third step is baptize. And the fourth step is continue teaching. In the last two lessons, we've been focused on the work of going to find prospects and then preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Now, as we prepare to discuss the third step of the Great Commission, which is baptizing, we need to recognize how getting to this point is contingent on the first two. For if you do not go and preach, there will not be anyone you will help be baptized into Christ. To consider this, I want you to think about Jesus' parable of the soils as you can read in Luke 8, verses 5 through 8, and then verses 11 through 15. As you do, you'll want, to, you'll want everyone you meet to be the good ground that receives the word and produces fruit. However, Jesus clearly teaches that there will be other kinds of soil that will not receive the word and or produce fruit that pleases him. First, the majority of soil in this world will be the wayside soil that will never accept the word of God so as to be baptized. And then, of those who are obedient to the word and baptized, many of them will be unfruitful either because they will not endure the difficulties involved in living for Christ like the rocky soil, or because they get distracted by the cares, riches, and pleasures of life like the thorny soil. Now, I want you to think about this parable as we prepare to talk about baptism, because it should help you understand that if you want to increase the number of people who are baptized and become fruitful followers of Jesus Christ, you will have to increase the amount that you do steps one and two. If you're only going and preaching sparingly, you will likely only baptize sparingly. However, there are good chances that the number of baptisms will increase the more that you increase your efforts in going and preaching to the lost. Although there is certainly no guarantee that people will ever be obedient to the Word of God, the likelihood of finding good soil will only increase when you are scattering as much seed as you possibly can. For it is certain that there will be no harvest when the seed stays in the barn. Haggai 2 verse 19. So if you're being diligent to implement the things God's word teaches about going and preaching, you will likely have opportunities to present the gospel's plan of salvation to people during your lifetime and ask for their obedience. Although this is certainly one part of preaching, I want to focus on it more as we discuss baptizing someone in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
As you consider the responsibility to baptize, perhaps you do not have much experience presenting someone with the gospel's plan of salvation and asking for their obedience. Perhaps the seriousness of this task makes you very nervous. So the thought of reaching this point leaves you with several questions such as, How do I present the gospel's plan of salvation? How do I help people make the right applications of that plan of salvation? How do I ask for their obedience? How do I overcome the objections people have? Therefore, I hope this lesson provides you some guidance as you consider the third step in this disciple-making process. Although baptism is a crucial element to salvation, it is certainly not the only thing God has required for salvation. And even with baptism, there are many who do not properly understand the subject. Therefore, you'll need to learn how to teach the gospel's plan of salvation. As you think about these points from the perspective of the teaching ladder discussed in the previous lesson, these are primarily rungs four through six. We have to make sure that the prospect understands these points in order for their baptisms to please God. So let's think about first teaching the need for salvation. The one you're studying the Bible with must come to the realization that he or she has sinned and of what his or her sin has done to his or her relationship with God. So, as you preach the gospel, you must make sure that sin is seen as mankind's greatest enemy and is the common enemy of all mankind. For you should not make the prospect feel as if he or she is the only sinner in the world or even in the room. Instead, you can make it clear in your teaching that you had also sinned against God without needing to get specific about the sins you had committed. Reading from Romans 3 may suffice to make the point. Verse 10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. And you can continue reading through verse 18 if necessary. And then verse 23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Emphasize the fact that we have all sinned who have reached the age of accountability. To sin means that we have all violated God's law. Actually, The Greek word for sin is an archery term. So you might draw a circle with some smaller circles inside, representing a target, and then help them visualize an arrow that misses the target. How it could accurately be said to sin or miss the mark. In the same way, we sin whenever we miss the mark God has set for our lives in the pages of the New Testament. For he has told us some things He wants us to do, and some things He does not want us to do. And therefore we sin whenever our lives go beyond His mark by doing things He does not want us to do, often called sins of commission. Or we sin whenever our lives come up short of His mark by not doing the things He wants us to do, often called sins of omission. However, the prospect must understand that sinning against God is far more serious than just missing a target with an arrow. You must help him or her recognize the great spiritual consequences for sinning against God. 
Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 is an excellent, uh, Romans 6 verse 23 is an excellent passage to use. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This death is spiritual separation from God. And if a person's life ends in this condition of spiritual death, he or she will experience the second death in the lake of fire the scriptures call hell, as you can see in Revelation 21 and verse 8. And this is not just the consequence. This is not just the consequences of really bad sins, but of every sin a person commits. To illustrate this, I like to draw a simple picture. Draw two straight horizontal lines, each with a jagged edge that breaks downward on the page, representing land that has broken. Above one side, draw a stick person representing the one who is in sin, and then write God on the other side. The point is that sin has separated a person from God, Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And this is serious because there is nothing that the sinner can do to earn his or her salvation. There is no way that a person could bridge the gap between himself or herself and God that has been created by sin. Spiritual death is what every sinner has earned, what he or she has deserved. It is called the wages of sin. And therefore, it's important to emphasize that no amount of good works, including baptism, could restore a sinner to a right relationship with God. As Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 teaches, we simply cannot earn salvation after we have sinned against God. And if this is where the Bible story ended, we would all be hopelessly lost in sin and headed for eternity in hell's fire. But thanks be to God, this is not where the story ends, so we need to continue and now think about teaching God's part in salvation. Romans 6 verse 23 goes on to explain that the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God has provided the gift of eternal salvation in heaven that no sinner deserves to experience. And this gift has been provided through Jesus Christ. This is the first half of God's plan of salvation. In this part, you will demonstrate that God has done for the sinner what he or she could not do for himself or herself. Take some time to walk the student through the things Jesus Christ has done for him or her in order that he or she might be saved from his or her sins. John 3 and verse 16 provides an excellent summary of this sacrifice and is a verse the prospect has probably heard before. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So, through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus gave those who were lost in sin two wonderful gifts. First, he gave them the opportunity to not perish in their sins that they do deserve to experience, which is avoiding eternal punishment in hell. God not giving people what they do deserve 
is often called God's mercy. Second, he gave them the opportunity to have everlasting life, that is, in heaven, that they do not deserve to experience. God giving people what they do not deserve is often called God's grace. And God's love has been demonstrated through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to provide grace and mercy for all sinners, as you see in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. One point I especially like to emphasize is the one made in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ was as rich as rich could be when he lived in heaven. However, he chose to leave heaven and come to this earth, becoming poor. The reason he did this is so that those who were spiritually destitute in sin, the prospect, yourself, and all sinners, could become spiritually rich so as to live in heaven one day. And therefore, everything Jesus Christ endured on this earth was the product of this choice. He left the place where there was no pain, sorrow, suffering, evil, and death in order to come here and experience those things so that the sinner could be saved through him. As you consider all of these things, you should make sure the prospect is familiar with some of the specifics of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. If they're not, walk through a summary of the biblical account. Make sure they realize why Jesus lived, how Jesus lived, the sufferings he endured, the death he died, and that he was raised from the dead. If they are familiar with the account, perhaps you can just offer some brief reminders and make sure they understand the scriptures accurately. And as you make this point, come back to the picture you drew, representing the separation sin has caused between the sinner and God. Now draw a cross that bridges the gap between the two. On the vertical post of the cross, I like to write, Jesus Christ. For he is the one who provides the bridge between the sinner and God. It is through him that the sinner can be reconciled to God and have everlasting life in heaven. But as we teach the plan of salvation, we can't just stop there. We also have to teach man's part in salvation. The sinner must recognize that although God has done for him or her what he or she could not do for himself or herself, there is still something that God has required for salvation. Look at Romans 6, verse 23 again. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice that the gift of eternal life God has provided is located in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we must search the scriptures and do whatever God requires to come into Jesus Christ. You should emphasize that God did for the sinner what the sinner could not do for himself or herself. But he has left the sinner with personal responsibility in his or her salvation. As you come back to your illustration now depicting Christ's cross as the bridge 
between the sinner and God, you should emphasize that God has left it up to the sinner to cross the bridge. Just because there is a bridge doesn't mean a person will be saved. Just believing the bridge exists doesn't mean a person will be saved. Instead, every sinner must take the necessary steps to cross the bridge. So, on the horizontal piece of the cross, I like to write steps of salvation. And then, above the horizontal piece, I like to write out each step as we walk through this part of the study. Now, before you identify what these steps are, take a moment, if you have not already done so, to ask the prospect if he or she believes himself or herself to already be a Christian and in a saved condition. If the answer is yes, ask what he or she was taught to do in order to be saved. Write that on another sheet of paper. Clearly distinguish where salvation came relative to him or her being baptized, if he or she has been baptized. I usually list out what the individual tells me and draw a thick line representing the point he or she thought he or she was saved. For instance, many who have been associated with so-called Protestant or evangelical churches will tell you that they were told to do the following. Hear God's word, believe in Jesus, repent, confess that they are sinners, and to ask Jesus into their hearts through prayer, namely through the sinner's prayer. This is the point many believe they were saved. And then they may or may not have been baptized after this. The importance of getting this on paper before you present the gospel's plan of salvation is because many people will convince themselves that they have done what you are about to present to them when they really haven't. So after writing down what you have been told, express your appreciation for their answer and move on to considering what the Bible has to say. Make sure he or she understands that you're only interested in believing, teaching, and practicing what God's Word teaches. The first step of salvation is hearing God's Word. You can consider passages like Romans 10, verse 17, and Acts 18, and verse 8. This point usually doesn't pose too much difficulty. People understand that someone cannot be obedient to a message he or she has never heard. So just emphasize that he or she has been hearing you preach God's word and is now hearing the plan of salvation. The second step of salvation is believing Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Involved in this is believing who he is, which necessitates a belief in God and what Jesus has done to save people from sin. You can consider passages like John 8, verse 24, Acts 16, and verse 31, Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, and Hebrews 11, verse 6. On this point, it, it's often necessary to demonstrate that although mentally accepting the Bible truths about Jesus Christ is essential to salvation, a person is not saved by faith only. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 is helpful in making the point, particularly noting verse 24. Also, Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23 can be used to help people see that many who profess Jesus as Lord and do some good things in his name will be lost in hell because they do not obey all that God says.
The, the third step in salvation is repenting of past sin. You can consider passages like Luke 13, verse 3, Acts 2, verse 38, Acts 3, verse 19, and Acts 17, verse 30. And then you may ask the one you're studying with what it means to repent. Make sure that he or she recognizes repentance as looking on his or her past sins with abhorrence, that is, regretting that he or she had ever committed those sins and determining to live differently in the future by living for God. Emphasize that repentance is not the actual change in a person's life. Instead, repentance is the change in a person's mind that will lead to a change in life. So, he or she does not have to make all the necessary changes to his or her life before he or she can be baptized. Instead, he or she must make the determination to make the necessary changes. If necessary, help the individual. Identify sins he or she needs to repent of, remembering what every sin does to his or her relationship with God. The fourth step of salvation is confessing Christ. You can consider passages like Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33, Acts 8, verse 37, and Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. Of these, Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33 is not just applicable to a confession prior to a person being forgiven of sin, but also to the, one, the ongoing need to confess Jesus Christ throughout life. And then Acts 8, verse 37 is a good example of a man who made a confession before being baptized, saying, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. However, recognize that this verse is not found in some of the Greek manuscripts, and therefore it is only given as a footnote in many Bible translations. Regardless, it is in perfect harmony with what is taught in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. This passage clearly teaches the need to confess Jesus as Lord with the mouth as a condition for salvation, and then emphasize that the nature of the required confession is not a confession that he or she is a sinner, though this is acknowledged in repentance. Instead, it is a confession of the Lord Jesus. The Ethiopian's confession in Acts 8 verse 37 is a good way to make this confession though it does not have to be made in that way. Number five, the fifth step of salvation is baptism. You can consider passages like Mark 16, verse 16, Acts 2, verse 38, Acts 22, verse 16, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, and 1 Peter 3, verses 20 and 21. In addition to demonstrating that baptism is only properly accomplished by an immersion in water, as you see in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, Acts 8, verses 38 and 39, and Matthew 3, verses 16 and 17, you will need to demonstrate that God has given baptism as a requirement for salvation. This is why baptizing is such an important step in the disciple-making process. As you consider this with the individual, I like to illustrate the point in this way. Draw a vertical line on a page. Below the line, write the words salvation, forgiveness, and in Christ. 
This line represents the point at which an individual is saved, forgiven of sins, and in Christ. And then walk through each of the passages on baptism and make the student decide which side of the line baptism falls on. For instance, Mark 16 verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. So, does Jesus teach that baptism comes before the point of salvation or after it? Be prepared for the wrong answers at first, and therefore be prepared to gently challenge their thinking and have them look at the verse again. If the individual is honest with the passages, you will have a whole list of passages about baptism on the left side of the line demonstrating that baptism is essential to each one of these things. In addition, consider Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. It says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Not only does this verse go on the left side of the line, but its truth can also be illustrated another way. Draw a circle and a stick figure outside of the circle. In the circle, write Christ. Underneath that word, write all spiritual blessings, Ephesians 1, verse 3, forgiveness, Ephesians 1, verse 7, and salvation, 2 Timothy 2, verse 10, and Romans 6, verse 23. Emphasize that these are the things that are only found in Christ. Now ask, how does someone come into Christ, where all spiritual blessings, forgiveness, and salvation are? Galatians 3, verse 27 clearly indicates that a person is baptized into Christ. And therefore, he or she cannot be in Christ without being baptized into Christ. So, draw a line from that person into the circle and write baptized into above the line. As you illustrate these things, you may have to help the one you're studying with recognize that being baptized after he or she believed he or she was saved and a Christian did not actually obey God's command to be baptized. For a person cannot be taught wrong and baptized right. And then, if there are any doubts that the individual has been baptized according to the teachings of Scriptures, emphasize that there is no harm doing it again, to be sure. At the point of baptism, an individual is saved. However, the sixth step of salvation is then to remain faithful to Jesus Christ for the duration of a person's life. You can use passages like Revelation 2 verse 10 and Galatians 5 and verse 4 to emphasize the need to remain faithful and the fact that it is possible to fall from God's grace. On this point, you need to help the individual understand some basics about committing himself or herself to Christ. Remember that Jesus taught a person to count the cost of discipleship, as you see in Luke 14, verses 25 through 33. So, help him or her recognize some of the things that are involved in living for Christ. And also help the individual recognize that becoming a Christian does not mean he or she will never sin again. However, help him or her recognize that if he or she does sin after becoming a Christian, God has provided a way to be forgiven again by repenting, confessing the sin to God, and asking God for forgiveness, as you see in Acts 8, verse 22, and 1 John 1, and verse 9. Well then, as you preach 
the gospel to people. You must put them in a position to make a decision about what they hear. Every step in God's plan of salvation requires a yes or no answer. For God's plan of salvation is not just some story that should make people feel good. Instead, God has required people to actually obey His plan of salvation, which requires decisions to be made. And therefore, let's consider some things that should help you ask for a decision when you have presented the gospel's plan of salvation. Let's first think about the need for patience. I've emphasized the need for patience a couple of times in this study already. Now, I want to do it again. Remember that 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2 says, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and teaching. The fact is that many people will never be obedient to the plan of salvation no matter how clearly it is presented. They may simply be like the wayside soil. Others may not be receptive to it at first, but also may continue to give you the opportunities to plant and water seeds of truth in their heart, as 1 Corinthians 3 verses 5-7 through teaches. Rather than becoming quickly discouraged and moving on to another person, make sure you exercise the necessary patience. The fact of the matter is that the gospel's plan of salvation requires everyone to make changes to the ways they think, believe, and act. Some simply embrace these changes faster than others. So, some people may respond immediately to the plan of salvation. While you may need to continue to water those seeds for many weeks, months, or years before they will fully take root in the hearts of others. For instance, not only does the gospel's plan of salvation make people decide about priorities and sinful things, but even deeply held beliefs can be impacted. For instance, suppose someone has thought he or she has been a Christian for many years as part of a denomination. Now, you are presenting him or her with information suggesting he or she has never been a Christian and is part of a church God does not approve. This can be a difficult truth to accept without giving a lot of thought to it. And some people never get past these things. And therefore, no matter what the situation is, make sure you are showing patience. Yet, you must also press for a decision and boldly demonstrate why it's so important to obey God's Word. For 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9 clearly demonstrates that those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ will experience God's vengeance and suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, being separated from God forever. Well then, let's think about drawing necessary conclusions. Typically, I like to help an individual reach a point where he or she is firmly convicted of his or her need to be scripturally baptized before I help him or her make some difficult conclusions, if there are any others that need to be made. I do this because if he or she will not accept the truths about baptism, then he or she will probably not accept any more difficult truths. And then I also do this so that I'm not cut off from the study before I have an opportunity to present the entire plan of salvation to him or her. There are times 
you will need to address some difficult truth before you baptize a person. For it's often easier to address these things before the person is baptized than afterward and is part of that person counting the cost of discipleship. For example, a person who is in an unscriptural marriage or relationship needs to repent of it. It's common for people today to either be in an unscriptural marriage or living with a boyfriend or girlfriend outside of marriage. If either is the case, that individual will need to be taught why the, the relationship is sinful and must be changed in order to please God. This individual will also need to be taught that he or she must not allow anything or anyone to come before Christ, as you see in Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39, and Luke, 4, ver, or Luke 14, verse 26. Or, there are many times whenever teaching someone the gospel requires an individual to change the church he or she attends. Perhaps this individual attends a denominational church that is not part of the true church he or she can read about in the Bible. Surely this kind of change may be difficult to accept at first. Yet, you will have to help this person understand the difference or differences between the church he or she attends and the church Christ has established along with the blueprint of local churches. Then, Another example of a difficult conclusion that the prospect may reach is that those who have not and or will not obey the truth you are teaching will spend eternity in hell. This may include a loved one who has died, or this may include all a person's friends and relatives in the church he or she has been attending. Yet you should emphasize what God says and the need for that person to obey the gospel in order to help others be saved. And even if a loved one has died, Luke chapter 16 verses 19 through 31 shows that our loved ones who are lost in sin would want us to do what is right so that we can be saved. Regardless of what the difficult truth is, you should have the heart of a shepherd and lead the one you are studying with to the truths contained in God's Word. As 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 through 26 says, Don't quarrel. Instead, be gentle, patient, and humble. Your only goal is to help the sinner come to his or her senses and lead him or her out of Satan's trap to the salvation that is found in Christ Jesus. To do this... You will also need to be bold and fear God more than men. While it may be uncomfortable and even fearful to teach the truth and help people arrive at the proper conclusions, you must not allow these things to stand in your way of teaching what needs taught. Like the apostles, you must speak God's word with boldness, as you see in Acts, not, uh, Acts 4 and verse 31. This means that you must not hold back from saying what needs to be said in the way it needs to be said. Furthermore, you must not fear how someone will react more than you fear God. When Jesus sent his apostles out to teach, he told them in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body 
in hell. Whether you think a person will accept the difficult truth or reject it, you must preach it all the same. This is preaching God's word in season and out of season. 2 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. And you never really know how someone will respond until you teach him or her. Well, as you teach the gospel in hopes of baptizing the individual into Christ, you will reach a point at which it is time to ask for a decision. And you need to recognize that sometimes the decision will be yes, sometimes it will be no, and sometimes it will be, I want to hear some more, or I need some time to think about it. But these are the same responses to the gospel you can read about throughout the pages of the Bible. For instance, consider when the Apostle Paul was teaching in Athens in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts 17, verses 32 through 34 says, And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed among them Dionysus the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Even Jesus and the apostles had these same responses to the gospel's message. And you should expect the same thing. So, always remember that the sower is not responsible for how the soil responds to the seed. The sower's job is just to sow the seed and expect that different results will be determined by factors outside of his or her control. And therefore, if the person you're studying with is never baptized, do not take this as failure on your part. Well, whenever you present the gospel to the individual you're studying with and ask for a decision, you should expect some people to offer some kind of objections um, to what you have taught. These objections should not be ignored. When these objections are raised in an honest and sincere way, the prospect is telling you what hinders him or her from being baptized. So listen to the objection and do your best to lead the individual past the objection. Some objections may concern the necessity of baptism for salvation. For instance, some may object, Jesus never said, he who does not believe and is not baptized will be condemned in Mark 16 and verse 16. Or Peter commanded people to be baptized because they had already been forgiven in Acts 2 verse 38 as an outward sign of an inward grace. Or the thief on the cross was saved without being baptized. Or baptism is a work and we cannot earn salvation. Or God only requires belief for salvation. Or some may raise objections as to why they are not obedient to the gospel on a larger level. For instance, some may object, I'm already living a morally good life. I'll get around to it someday. I don't want to go to church with a bunch of hypocrites. I know that I'll just mess up and sin again. I don't want to change. I don't want to condemn my loved ones to hell. The fact is that there are many objections people may raise to the truth you present them with and the actions they should take. However, rather than than growing frustrated with them, stay patient and help them work through their objections. Use their objections as opportunities 
to study the Bible with them more, learn what it's what it is they are objecting to, and search the scriptures together for the answer. Encourage them to accept the Bible's teaching as the final answer. And if you do not know how to answer the objection at a particular moment, don't be afraid to say that you will have to study the matter further and get back with them about it. Now, the final question I want to consider in this lesson that I hope has prepared you to baptize people so that they can be disciples of Christ is, how do I know when someone is ready to be baptized? To answer this question, simply consider all that we have been discussing in the plan of salvation. Here are the prerequisites to Bible baptism. First, an individual must have committed sin. Second, an individual must be able to hear God's word and have it taught to him or her. Third, an individual must believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Fourth, an individual must repent of his or her sin. Fifth, an individual must confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Sixth, an individual must accept the Bible's teachings about baptism. Seventh, an individual must be committed to living for Christ in the future. If all these things were in place, then that person should be baptized into Christ immediately. As we close this lesson, baptism is an essential step in the disciple-making process. So you should exercise patience in teaching and do everything you can to help someone be obedient to the gospel's plan of salvation and be baptized into Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Although few will make this commitment to Christ, there is no greater feeling than knowing that you have played a small but important role in helping someone be forgiven of his or her sins and therefore stay committed to the work of planting and watering the seed, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. You've been listening to the GodSaidSo.com podcast with Eric Craig. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today. If we can help you in studying the Bible, please contact us with any questions or comments or to request free Bible study material. Please call 1-844-77-BIBLE and leave a voice message at that number or you can email contact at GodSaidSo.com. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today, and I hope that we can have opportunity to study together in the near future.